If you wish to become a complete and wise leader, you must embrace a larger view of the force. Welcome, everyone. My name is Devor, and you are listening to episode 21 of A Larger View of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. A reminder, as always, if this is your first time listening, please go and check out the earlier episodes of this show, and make sure you hit that subscribe button so that you keep up to date with new episodes as they come out. Today, we're crossing franchises yet again for the third time this year to talk about The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. As those who've watched the show know, Falcon and the Winter Soldier follows Sam Wilson and Bucky Barnes after the events of Avengers Endgame as they try to navigate a world without Steve Rogers as Captain America. In telling the story, the show explores two themes that play an important role in the Star Wars universe, which is why I'm talking about it on this show. On the one hand, there's the theme of legacy and all the complexities that come along with that. And second, the way that special objects, particularly those that are handed down, intersect with the hero's journey. So we'll be tackling both of those ideas on this episode and see how they manifest themselves in Star Wars, on the show, and in the wider Marvel Cinematic Universe. So I want to start with the second one first. I want to look at this notion, this idea of special objects, and then we'll go into talking about the theme of legacy. And I want to start off by looking, really taking a wide lens and looking at the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So this is going to be another one of those episodes where, for a big chunk of the beginning, we're not going to be talking about Star Wars. (laughs) But I think for regular listeners of this show, they are pretty used to episodes that go like that. So in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as in Star Wars, and we'll dig into the Star Wars side of this more later on in the episode, issues of identity and legacy are mediated through relationships to special objects. And in the context of the MCU, I really want to focus on the three leading characters of the Infinity Saga. So namely, Tony Stark, Thor, and Steve Rogers, Captain America. And talk about the ways that each of them has a particular object to which their identity, particularly their conception of themselves, both as people and also as heroes, is connected. And how the relationship to those objects for each of those characters evolves. So in the case of Tony, it's the suit. In the case of Thor, it's the hammer. And in the case of Steve Rogers, it is the shield. So let's start first with Tony Stark. So if we go all the way back to the very first MCU movie, Iron Man, we get the story there of how Tony goes from this selfish, philandering, playboy billionaire into ultimately becoming the Iron Man. And as we know, that movie ends with him making that emphatic declaration, I am Iron Man. And what we see in that movie is that he grows a lot over the course of just that one movie 
through his experience of getting kidnapped and seeing the effects that his weapons have on ordinary people. He goes from being a very selfish, self-centered person to being a person who has a greater purpose, who ends up giving up manufacturing weapons and then takes on this mantle of Iron Man and starts to become a hero and tries to actually help other people and think about other people. But that last line of the movie where he says, I am Iron Man at the press conference, that still illustrates how far he has to go in his journey, both as an individual and as a hero. So in that moment, he is on the one that he is embracing the suit as a part of him. I am Iron Man. He's establishing that link there with that special object of his, of the suit, of identifying the suit as part of him. But in doing it in that particular moment, in that particular context, it really functions as a brag. It's a way of inflating himself, of making himself bigger and more important. Because he's doing it in the context of a press conference and all of these reporters. And as soon as he says that, everybody in the room goes wild. If we transition into looking at Iron Man 2, that theme again of the link between man and object, man and suit, continues. So we get that scene towards the beginning of the movie where he is testifying about the suit in front of Congress. And he has this line where he says, I am Iron Man. The suit and I are one. To turn over the Iron Man suit would be to turn over myself, which is tantamount to indentured servitude or prostitution, depending on what state you're in. So on the one hand, we're continuing to see in Iron Man 2 this question of the role that these objects are playing in terms of forming Tony's identity. So that, that aspect. But we also start to see increasingly in Iron Man 2, and this is a big part of the story, is we're also seeing that other element, which is about issues of legacy getting mediated through these special objects. So the main villain of Iron Man 2 is the character of Ivan Vanko. And Ivan in that story is really presented as a mirror character to Tony. His father, Anton, was like Howard Stark, a scientist, and then he himself, Ivan, is a genius. He uses the arc reactor blueprints that he gets from his father in order to build his own miniaturized arc reactor and to build the whiplash armor. And what we see Ivan doing as part of the project of becoming whiplash, of using the Stark technology, is he is challenging the Stark legacy. So there's that scene where he and Tony meet after Vanko's been arrested after the events at Monaco, where he says, you come from a family of thieves and butchers. And like all guilty men, you try to rewrite your history to forget all the lives the Stark family has destroyed. So you're seeing this issue of legacy that is starting to come up in Tony's story, in the story of Iron Man, which is what is the real legacy of the Starks and the Stark family? Tony is trying to use the Iron Man suit and that technology to change how people perceive him and the Stark family. He is trying to become a hero. He's moving away from weapons manufacturing to trying to help people and to bring about peace. Vanko, meanwhile, in becoming Whiplash, is using that same technology, is appropriating it in order to try and tell a different story and a different narrative about the legacy of the Stark family. You come from a family of thieves and butchers to talk about the lives that the Stark family has destroyed, lives like 
Anton Vanko and by extension Ivan Vanko. So you're seeing identity and legacy, the way that those are intersecting with one another and the way that that story is getting told through this relationship to the suit. And then when we go to Iron Man 3, what's interesting about Iron Man 3 is there, once again, we see an evolution in the relationship between Tony and the suits, again, between person and object, where the big part of Iron Man 3 is he has to learn how to be Iron Man without the suit. So when we find him at the beginning of the movie, he still has very much that attitude that we see going from the end of Iron Man 1 through Iron Man 2, through that press conference scene, and then going into Iron Man 3, where he has that conversation in the garage with Pepper, where he says, my suits, they're uh, machines, they're part of me. So he's still identifying himself closely. His identity of himself and his identity as a hero is still very closely linked to the special object, to the suit. But the circumstances of the movie and the plot of the movie force him to change his way of thinking, to change his relationship to the suit and the way that he thinks about who Iron Man is and who he is. So partway through the movie, he loses the Mark 42. He uses it to escape the destruction of his Malibu home and he ends up in Tennessee and it ends up running out of battery and dying. And so for basically a big chunk of the remainder of the movie of that second half of the movie, he has to operate it without it. So he has to hunt down, he has to figure out who the Mandarin is and figure out Aldrich Killian's plot and all that and thwart him and such without the suit. So he has there are multiple moments where he's like trying to rebuild the suit or power it up or summon it and it's not working or it breaks apart or all that. So Iron Man 3 is really about him being Iron Man, but severing that link between man and suit, basically saying that he can be Iron Man without wearing the armor, that the suit and him are not, in fact, one. And what we see is that by the end of the movie, he gets to that point. So in the climax, after he defeats Aldrich Killian, he summons all the Iron Legion suits there to help him out in the fight but then he blows them all up he gets rid of them and then we get the closing line of that movie where he says you can take away my house all my tricks and toys one thing you can't take away i am iron man once again we get that line from the first movie but it has a different meaning back then when he says it there and then also when he says it in iron man 2 in the press conference scene when he's saying it there the suit and him are one. So he is Iron Man when he has the suit. But when you get to the end of Iron Man 3, when he's saying, I am Iron Man there, that's disconnected from the suit. Because he says that you can take away my house, all my tricks and toys. So you can get rid of the suit. He can be stripped of his armor, but he's still Iron Man because it's him. And it's about his character and about his motivations. It's not about the suit, which was the case in Iron Man 1 and the case in Iron Man 2. By the time he gets to Iron Man 3, he's adopted a different point of view by virtue of what he's gone through there. And you see that changed attitude reflected in his appearance in Spider-Man Homecoming. So there's that great moment between him and Peter Parker after the ferry incident where Tony reprimands him and takes away the Iron Spider suit. And Peter pushes back immediately and he says, you don't understand, it's all I have, I'm nothing without the suit. And then Tony retorts, if you're nothing without this suit, then you shouldn't have it, okay? So in that movie, he forces Peter to learn the same lesson that he had to learn, which is that becoming a hero is about what you do and who you are. It's not about the tech. 
And that's a lesson that Peter himself ultimately goes through when he goes back to his homemade suit. And there's that scene where he confronts Vulture and Vulture brings down the whole structure on top of him. And he kind of has to force himself out and ultimately goes on and defeats Vulture in the non-mech suit. So Peter in that one movie comes to the same discovery. He has to go on that same self-exploration that Tony does over the course of the three Iron Man movies, where he has to sever that association between himself and the suit, where he has to realize that being a hero is not about the toys and the tricks and the suit. It's about your own disposition, your own attitude, and whether you're coming from the right place of wanting to help people. And so then if we fast forward to the end of Tony's journey, the last time he says that line, I am Iron Man, when he gets the Infinity Stones and he does the snap in order to kill Thanos and his army. Once again, we get that line again from Iron Man 1, from Iron Man 2, from Iron Man 3. But now, taking over the whole arc of Tony's journey, it has a totally different meaning from the first movie. It's a 180 inversion from what happens in the first movie. Whereas that first I Am Iron Man, I think you could even say the second I Am Iron Man from the press conference scene in Iron Man 2. That was a selfish declaration. That was him boasting. That was him bragging. But when he says, I am Iron Man here, it's totally selfless. It's not about self-promotion. It's not about making himself bigger or better. It's an expression of his willingness to make the sacrifice play to save the universe, to do the thing that Cap in the first Avengers movie says he couldn't ever do. When he has that line where he says, you're not the person to make the sacrifice play to lay himself down and let the others cross over him. So that's what that is. That is a declaration of selflessness, of saying, I am the hero and I'm going to do what needs to be done in order to protect the universe, even if that means I die at the end of it. So just in that single line, in the change in the, in the subtext of that line, we can see Tony's evolution as a hero and also the change in how he thinks of himself as Iron Man and how he relates to his suits. When he says, I am Iron Man in Endgame, it's not a comment about the suit. It's a comment about him. It's about his character. So that's Tony's story. So if we now move over to talking about Thor and the relationship that he has to his special object. So when we go to the first Thor movie, when we meet Thor there for the first time, we find him when he is about to ascend to the throne of Asgard to succeed his father Odin, to become king. And it is at that same moment that he is being given Mjolnir. Mjolnir! And what we see in that first part of, in the, in the kind of opening act of the movie is that Thor and his buddies go to Jotunheim to confront the frost giants after they break into Asgard and attempt to attack during the coronation. And Thor, in making that move, disrupts the peace between Asgard and Jotunheim. And as punishment for that, Odin ultimately banishes him from Asgard and takes Mjolnir from him because he deems him unworthy of the hammer, unworthy of his friends and his family and of the throne. And it's at that moment that as he sort of banishes them that Odin places the charm on Mjolnir where he says, whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. So that Thor that we see in really that first quarter of that movie, when we first meet him, there he's very arrogant, 
He's power hungry. He's driven to fight. There's that whole back and forth that him and Odin have when they get back to Asgard after they were in Jotunheim, where Thor tells him, there won't be a kingdom to protect if you're afraid to act. The Jotuns must learn to fear me just as they once feared you. To which Odin replies, that's pride and vanity talking, not leadership. You've forgotten everything I taught you about a warrior's patience. And so once Thor ends up on Earth, what we see with him there over the course of that first movie is just like Tony with the Iron Man suit early on, Thor is eager to get Mjolnir back because he thinks that defines who he is. So he can only understand his greatness, his purpose, his power through possessing Mjolnir, through possessing the hammer. And then we get that powerful moment where ultimately he finds it in the New Mexico desert and he tries to pick it up, but he can't because he's not worthy of it. Because he's still coming from a very kind of selfish mentality of just wanting power and wanting to make himself greater in the same way that, as we talked about with that I Am Iron Man line with Tony, he's using the suits early on as a way to kind of inflate himself. By the time we get to the end of the movie, though, Thor is starting to have a shift. So when Loki sends the Destroyer after him on Earth, Thor demonstrates that he is willing to sacrifice himself in order to protect the humans. He basically, you know, he tells Loki, like, leave the humans, like, leave them alone. Don't destroy them. Take me like your your beef is with me. Just wipe me out. And is it at that moment when he demonstrates that selflessness, just like with Tony, that is a moment in which he becomes worthy again and Mjolnir comes to him and he becomes Thor, the heroic Thor. And we get another moment at the end of that movie also where we see the change in his character happening when he's willing to destroy the Bifrost and save Jotunheim, even if it means never seeing Jane again and severing that connection to Earth. It's another selfless act. It is showing his growth over the course of the movie from where we see him at the beginning of the movie. And ultimately, at the very end of the movie, when he's back in Asgard and he's reunited with Odin, we get to see some of that humility that he's gained over the course of his experience on Earth, where he tells Odin, I have much to learn. I know that now. Someday, perhaps, I shall make you proud. So Thor, at the end of the first Thor movie, has grown a lot as a person. So he's shed off some of that brash, power-hungry, combatant mentality that he had at the very beginning of the movie. He's starting to become a little bit more humble and a little bit more selfless. But there's still the ultimate, he still has the same goal that he did at the end of the movie as he did at the beginning of the movie, which is ultimately to ascend the throne and become king of Asgard. He just thinks, oh, I have much to learn. I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm not yet ready. Over the course of the next couple of movies, though, his attitude about ruling and about his destiny, about his purpose begin to change. So the events of both the first Avengers movie and then also Thor the Dark World start to change Thor's views on being a king. So in the first Avengers with his brother Loki, he sees how Loki is willing to go to extreme lengths in order to rule Earth. He's willing to make the alliance with Thanos, that he's willing to summon the the Chitauri and to inflict all of this death and destruction and war on Earth in order to ultimately become its ruler. So he sees how that quest for power, that quest to rule, can kind of corrupt somebody and make them willing to go to great destructive lengths in order to get that power. 
And then he gets to see that again in the context of the events of Thor the Dark World. So there's that scene where he and Odin have a confrontation over Thor's plan to take Jane to the Dark World in order to draw the Dark Elves over there and to protect Asgard. And Odin kind of pushes back on his plan and he says, if you fail, you risk this weapon falling into the hands of our enemies because the ether's inside Jane. Thor replies, the risk is far greater if we do nothing. If and when he comes, Odin says, his men will fall on 10,000 Asgardian blades. And how many men shall fall on theirs, Thor asks. As many as are needed, Odin replies. We will fight to the last Asgardian breath, to the last drop of Asgardian blood. Then how are you different from Malekith, Thor asks. The difference, my son, is that I will win. So as with Loki, he's seeing what ruling entails. So he's seeing how his father, just like Loki, is willing to sacrifice as many lives as are necessary in order to hold on to power. Odin is willing to lay down all of these lives of these Asgardian soldiers if it means he gets to win against Malekith. Ultimately, the conclusion that Thor reaches by the end of Dark World, when he has the conversation with who he thinks is Odin but is actually Loki in disguises, he relinquishes that thing that he wanted most at the beginning of the first Thor movie. He relinquishes that ultimate goal of becoming a ruler. So he says, quote, Father, I cannot be king of Asgard. I will protect Asgard and all the realms in my last and every breath, but I cannot do so from that chair. Loki, for all his grave imbalance, understood rule as I know I never will. The brutality, the sacrifice, it changes you. I'd rather be a good man than a great king. So huge evolution just over those two movies and also the events of Avengers. So three movies, technically, where he's starting to realize that his ultimate destiny and his ultimate identity of who he is and who he's supposed to be is starting to change. He no longer sees himself as a ruler, but instead as a protector of the realms. Then when you move into Thor Ragnarok, Thor Ragnarok is really interesting because we get to see that element of legacy coming in and the way that that intersects with the special object, with Mjolnir. So in that movie, Thor and Loki learn about Hela, their banished sister. And just as Tony has to do in Iron Man 3, which is he has to learn how to beat Iron Man without the suit, Thor has to learn to be Thor without the hammer after Hela shows up and destroys it. And what's interesting about Hela in this movie is that she performs a function similar to the character of Ivan Vanko in Iron Man 2, which is that she becomes a vehicle for learning about the legacy of Odin and about Asgard. So we get that contested interpretation, the contested understanding of who Odin was and what Asgard is in the same way we see this conflict and tension over what is the Stark legacy back in Iron Man 2. Hela, it turns out, had been Odin's firstborn child, and she was the intended successor to the throne of Asgard. And in fact, Mjolnir was made for her. She was the first wielder of Mjolnir, not Thor. Thor was never going to be, Thor was never in the original plan supposed to be the ruler of Asgard. He just happened to be the backup plan after, after Odin locked Hela away. And so then we get that moment when Hela shows up back in Asgard and she's in sort of the Great Hall where she says, does no one remember me? 
Has no one been taught our history? Look at these lies. And she looks up at like the murals on the ceiling. Goblets and garden parties? Peace treaties? Odin. Proud to have it. Ashamed of how he got it. We were unstoppable. I was his weapon in the conquest that built Asgard's empire. One by one, the realms became ours. But then, simply because my ambition outgrew his, he banished me, caged me, locked me away like an animal. So there's that powerful moment where she pulls down the murals on the ceiling to reveal Asgard's true history. That the, the history wasn't of you know peace and cooperation, but it was war and conquest and blood. And so over that whole movie, again, just like with Tony in Iron Man 3, Thor doesn't have Mjolnir and he has to figure out how to defeat her and how to be the hero without this special object that he's been using to sort of identify who he is and what his purpose is over the course of his story. And then when we get to the climax and they're all back on Asgard and they're fighting Hela, Thor has a moment where he has like the conversation with Odin where he feels that he can't defeat Hela without Mjolnir, that he's just not powerful enough to defeat her. And then there's that great back and forth between him and Odin where Odin tells him, are you Thor, the god of hammers? That hammer was to help you control your power, to focus it. It was never your source of strength. It's too late, Thor replies. She's already taken Asgard. Asgard is not a place, Odin tells him. It never was. This could be Asgard, because in this vision, he's in, uh, he's in Norway. Asgard is where our people stand. Even now, right now, those people need your help. I'm not as strong as you. Thor says, no, you're stronger. And then ultimately, Thor is able to use his power to summon the lightning without the hammer, without Mjolnir. Because just like Tony discovers that he is Iron Man without the suit, Thor realizes he can be Thor without the hammer. And to that line that Odin has about Asgard is not a place, that is ultimately the insight that allows Thor to triumph, where Hela thinks of Asgard as a place, but Thor comes to understand it as a people. And so as a result, he's willing to bring about Ragnarok and destroy Asgard, and by extension Hela, in order to safeguard the people. So again, huge character evolution for Thor, where we start him off in the first movie, and he just wants to rule, he just wants to fight. And then we get to the end of Ragnarok, and he's lost Mjolnir, but he's learned to summon his power without it. He's learned how to be a hero without the special object. And also, it's not about Asgard anymore. It's not about this place. It's about protecting these people. That's what Asgard is. So a big change in terms of making that move from selfishness to selflessness in the same way that Tony does over the course of his own story. And then when we get to Infinity War and Endgame, Thor has... For me, one of the most interesting arcs over the course of those two movies for any of the characters. So after losing Asgard at the end of Ragnarok, Asgard the place, Thor is made to suffer more losses. So at the beginning of the of the movie of Infinity War, he loses Loki, he loses Heimdall, he loses basically half the Asgardian refugees on their transport. And then in the movie, he ends up going to Nidavellir in order to forge Stormbreaker. And what's really interesting to me in terms of the symbolism of Stormbreaker is that 
it embodies how he's becoming his own person and he's being less defined by his past and by his lineage. So he no longer has Mjolnir. He no longer has this object that was given to him by his father that symbolized his original purpose, which was to become king of Asgard and to rule and to sit on the chair and to rule from that throne to rule a particular place. Now with Stormbreaker, here's this weapon that is his own that he's forging because he restarts the forge. And that is symbolizing the way that he is changing himself and changing how he understands what his own purpose is and what it means to be a hero. And then as we know, at the end of Infinity War, he ultimately fails to kill Thanos and to prevent the snap. And then when we transition to Endgame, that results in him taking on a great deal of guilt that turns him into, once they do the five-year jump, it turns him into, quote-unquote, Fat Thor. And we find him, and he's let himself go, and he's drinking a lot, and he's playing video games all the time, and he doesn't want any part of the fight and all that. But then ultimately, as we know, he joins, and he goes on the time heist, and... We ultimately get what is, for me, one of my absolutely favorite moments in Endgame, which is when he is back in Asgard and he has the conversation with Frigga, with his mom. And their back and forth, I think, is so important. And I think there's so many really kind of important lessons and things you can take away from that, where he's still sort of processing some of his guilt about what he wasn't able to do in terms of defeating Thanos. And he tells her, quote, his head was over there, his body over there. What was the point? I was too late. I was just standing there. Some idiot with an axe. You're no idiot, Frigga tells him. You're here, aren't you? Seeking counsel from the wisest person in Asgard? I guess, yeah, Thor says. Idiot? No. A failure? Absolutely. That's a little bit harsh. You do know what that makes you, just like everyone else. Big line right there. I'm not supposed to be like everyone else, am I? Thor asks. Everyone fails at who they are supposed to be, Thor. The measure of a person, of a hero, is how well they succeed at being who they are. Love that exchange. Love that back and forth. Where she's trying to reassure him, yes, you failed. Yes, you messed up. But that just makes you like everyone else. Yes, you're not who you're supposed to be, quote unquote. But the important thing is not that. It's about becoming who you are. And both of those notions are reflected, we'll talk about this a little bit down the road, are reflected in Star Wars. That shows up again. Those same ideas, those same themes. And then we get that moment just before he and Rocket ultimately leave to go back in the present. He summons back Mjolnir and it comes back to him. And he has that moment where he looks at the hammer and says, I'm still worthy. And that just that's a line that just has so many layers where it has the literal connotation, where, which is he's still worthy of the hammer. But then there's deeper stuff happening there, which is it's also a commentary on himself. And that despite the fact that he failed and messed up, he still has worth as a person. And that's really why I love Thor in Endgame. I know a lot of people have made critiques about the portrayal of Thor in Endgame. And those critiques are valid about whether or not the film is kind of making fun of depression, of substance issues, of of his body size and all that. And like all of those are valid things to bring up and valid critiques to make. But I think like particularly that moment, the I'm still worthy moment when he summons back Mjolnir. I think ultimately what the what the moral of Thor in Endgame there is there is that 
you can mess up. You can mess up big time. You can do something that has a lot of consequences for other people. You can feel like a failure, but you still have worth and value as a person. At the end of the day, that doesn't, that fact doesn't change. Even if you've made a terrible mistake, even if you've let a lot of people down, you're still worthy. You still have value. And I think that's a really, really important takeaway from Thor's story. And in that whole conversation there with Frigga, that is all about Thor sort of further shedding the role and the identity that had been foisted upon him all the way back at the beginning of his story in the first Thor movie. And we get to see the final realization of that at the end of Endgame, where ultimately he decides to leave with the Guardians and he makes Valkyrie the ruler of New Asgard. And they have that conversation where he says, it's time for me to be who I am rather than who I'm supposed to be. And then Valkyrie asks him, what will you do? And he replies, I'm not sure. For the first time in a thousand years, I have no path. So again, that huge arc for Thor, where he's gone from that arrogant, war-hungry, power-hungry figure to somebody who has shed those expectations and that particular destiny and is becoming who he is rather than who he's supposed to be and is going to chart his own path and forge his own identity. And a big part of that involved severing that relationship to that special object, to Mjolnir, to no longer identifying himself as Thor, the god of hammers, and realizing the important part is the part within, just like Tony does with I Am Iron Man. So we talked about Tony talked about Thor. Now we got to talk about Steve Rogers. And so that's going to help us to kind of neatly transition to getting into Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So if we start off first movie, Captain America, the first Avengers, we meet Steve Rogers there. He's this skinny, small little kid, wants to get into the army, wants to serve. He becomes ultimately selected for this experimental super soldier program. And there's a really, really key moment that's sort of I think really is kind of defining of Steve Rogers' story over the course of the rest of the MCU, where he has the conversation with Dr. Erskine, basically the night before he's going to take the super soldier serum. And Erskine is telling him about Red Skull and how the Red Skull had taken a version of the super soldier serum, and then it ultimately transformed into the Red Skull. And Erskine tells Steve, quote, the serum was not ready, but more important, the man the serum amplifies everything that is inside. So good becomes great. Bad becomes worse. This is why you were chosen. Because a strong man who has known power all his life will lose respect for that power. But a weak man knows the value of strength and knows compassion. Whatever happens tomorrow, you must promise me one thing. That you will stay who you are. Not a perfect soldier, but a good man. Love that last line. Not a perfect soldier, but a good man. It's a parallel to, if you're nothing without the suit, you shouldn't have it. It's a parallel to, I'd rather be a good man than a great king. So again, that emphasis on inner character, on that being important. Not the, not the serum. Like The serum is not what's going to make you good or bad. What's ultimately going to make you good or bad is who you are at the kind of core level. And the serum is just going to amplify that one way or another. And then what we see in the movie is that after Steve gets the super soldier serum and he's transformed into Captain America, he's not sent out into the field in order to fight. Instead, he's used basically 
to sell war bonds. And he travels around the United States doing these pitches to get people to buy war bonds. And so what we see in that scene is we're seeing the formation of quote unquote Captain America and the use of the shield as an idea, as a symbol, and one that is exploited. And that is something that's going to come up again when we get to talking about Falcon and the Winter Soldier, when Captain America, quote unquote, is brought back in the figure of John Walker. But we're going to put a pin in that and talk about some other things. And we see ultimately the, the tension and the gap between the image of Captain America and the image of the shield and the reality. So there's that great scene where he goes to the front lines and does his whole Captain America spiel in front of the soldiers. And it's a totally different reception where the soldiers just kind of boo and heckle him and think he's ridiculous. Whereas like all the civilians back in the U.S. loved and adored him. So there's that contrast between propaganda and reality, between this image and then what is actually happening on the front lines. And there's that moment where Peggy Carter sort of confronts him about this, where, you know, she's talking about the options that he has. And she says, a lab rat or a dancing monkey? You were meant for more than this, you know. So she's sort of pushing him to embrace the mantle of Captain America and the shield and to become an actual hero as opposed to just this poster boy, which is how he's being used. And what we see ultimately in the course of that movie is that in rescuing the POWs from Hydra and fighting Hydra and defeating the Red Skull and ultimately in sacrificing himself, Steve gives substance and moral weight to the symbol of Captain America. He sort of infuses the suit and infuses the shield with his own character and with his own values and sort of elevates what that means. So when we move on to the second movie, to Captain America, the Winter Soldier, there we start to see a shift in Steve Rogers' character in the way he sort of thinks about himself and thinks about what Captain America is and what it means. So at the beginning of the movie, we meet present-day Cap, and he's very similar to the Cap of the 1940s, which is he's the loyal soldier, he's following orders, he's doing what needs to be done. He's the team player. However, tensions start to arise after that first mission at the beginning of the movie where they do the rescue on the ship. When he realizes the Black Widow has her own mission and her own agenda. And so he ultimately confronts Nick Fury about that. And he's sort of upset that S.H.I.E.L.D. isn't being upfront. That Nick is sort of compartmentalizing information. And he really thinks that like everybody on the team needs to know what's going on. And then ultimately, what's the big kind of crux of the plot of that movie is that Cap's world and ultimately his worldview and his, as we're going to see later on, his faith in institutions comes to be shattered when he discovers that S.H.I.E.L.D. is in fact Hydra and also that Bucky is still alive and he's been turned into the Winter Soldier, basically into this weapon. And then, as we know, Cap is ultimately deemed a fugitive and he has to go on the run. And he's being chased down by S.H.I.E.L.D. slash Hydra. And at the end of the movie, when they start talking about stopping S.H.I.E.L.D. and Project Insight and all the helicarriers, Fury is just focused on destroying the helicarriers and trying to basically salvage what they can. But Steve really pushes back and insists that S.H.I.E.L.D. itself is sort of corrupt at its core and ultimately needs to be destroyed. So we're seeing that shift from the loyal, dutiful soldier to this man who's willing to take down the entire institution of S.H.I.E.L.D. because he thinks it's just rotten all the way through. 
So this movie marks this kind of important turning point for Steve. He's less the obedient soldier now, and he starts questioning his superiors more and their agendas and what they're trying to do. And he's starting to act more independently. And so I think about that title of the movie, Captain America, The Winter Soldier. And I would make the case that that title has a double meaning. So Winter Soldier, on the one hand, describes Bucky, because that's who he is. He's the character of the Winter Soldier. But I would make the case that it also increasingly describes Steve, which is that Steve is becoming a Winter Soldier in the sense that he is increasingly following his own intuition and his own gut as opposed to following orders and rules and protocol and things that are handed down from above because now he's suspicious of institutions and their agendas and whose interests he may or may not be serving. So I think it has that interesting way that it works on both of those levels. And we get to start to see some of that shift in Avengers Age of Ultron, where he and Tony have the back and forth when they're at Hawkeye's home and they're talking about Ultron and about sort of the purpose of the Avengers and such. And he tells Tony, every time someone tries to win a war before it starts, innocent people die. Every time. So that line, like when you put Winter Soldier in there, you can see how that the events of that movie are informing what he's talking about. Trying to win a war before it starts, because that's what Shield slash Hydra was trying to do with Project Insight, which is to wipe out all the people, the helicarriers. And then ultimately, that whole evolution for Cap ultimately comes to fruition in Captain America Civil War, where we get that split between Cap and Tony over the Sokovia Accords and whether or not they should sign them. And Steve was really kind of pushing back on the notion of limits, on the notion of checks. There's a scene where Rhodes tells him, I'm sorry, Steve, that that is dangerously arrogant when he's saying, like, we shouldn't submit to, you know, to the United Nations. This is the United Nations we're talking about. It's not the World Security Council. It's not S.H.I.E.L.D. It's not HYDRA. To which Steve replies, no, but it's run by people with agendas, and agendas change. Then Tony interjects, that's good. That's why I'm here. When I realized what my weapons were capable of in the wrong hands, I shut it down and stopped manufacturing. And then Steve replies, Tony, you chose to do that. If we sign this, we surrender our right to choose. What if this panel sends us somewhere we don't think we should go? What if there's somewhere where you need to go and they don't let us? We may not be perfect, but the safest hands are still our own. So Cap's stance of not willing to submit to the United Nations, of feeling like the safest hands are still our own, and not willing to serve another institution, another agenda, that is informed by what he went through Winter Soldier, by the discovery of S.H.I.E.L.D. really being Hydra. And another interesting aspect to Cap, and we get to actually see this also when we get into Infinity War, is Cap's more independent attitude is also increasingly reflected in and symbolized in his uniform. So by the time we get to the airport fight in Munich, if you look at the suit that he's wearing, he no longer has the Avengers logo on him. So he's taken it off. So he is symbolically severing himself, distancing himself from this institution of the Avengers and sort of marking himself out as his own man, as an independent hero. And then we ultimately get to that climactic fight at the end between Steve and Bucky on the one hand and Tony on the other. And despite everything that's happened with Bucky and the revelation that he is the Winter Soldier killed Tony's parents, Steve ultimately chooses to defend Bucky. And then there's that, after they fight, there's that really powerful moment that always like 
it hits me every single time I watch Captain America Civil War, where Tony's on the ground after he's been defeated by Cap. Well, Cap has that moment where he brings the shield down into Tony's chest and busts the arc reactor, where Tony tells him, that shield doesn't belong to you. You don't deserve it. My father made that shield. And then Steven responds to that, drops the shield. It's this final marker of him going his own way. So that shield, go back to First Avenger. What did that shield symbolize, that suit symbolize? That symbolized him being part of this greater institution because he, Captain America, the shield, they were being used by the U.S. government as this symbol, as propaganda in order to get people to buy war bonds. Then he, through First Avenger, a little bit into Winter Soldier, he sort of gives meaning to that. He sort of really flushes out what it means to be Captain America. But then by the time we get to Civil War, and he's had everything that happened to him in Winter Soldier, and he starts questioning institutions and agendas, and he starts not being the loyal soldier anymore. He starts bucking orders. He he starts going his own path, thinking for himself, following his own gut. He ultimately drops the shield, the shield which had meant that he was part of something greater, that he was following orders. He relinquishes that. It's that symbol that he's he's going his own way. He's not going to be that Captain America anymore. And so when we pick up with him again in Infinity War, we find another symbolic change. So when he's in his in the Nomad outfit, it no longer has the star in the center, the white star that's on his chest. That's gone. He's also not wearing the helmet. So again, he's further shedding those symbols that marked him as part of something. He no longer has the Avengers logo. He no longer has the shield. He no longer has the white star. Ultimately, at the end of the movie, when we have the Battle of Wakanda, he gets a shield, but it's not his own. So he's still not fully back into being Captain America as he once was. But then once we get into Avengers Endgame and we get to the time heist and everything that happens there, at the beginning of that movie, we see that fight that happens between him and Tony after the snap, where Tony sort of resents Cap for walking away. He's got that line where he says, I said we lose. You said we'll do that together too. And guess what, Cap? We lost and you weren't there. Ultimately, though, once Tony decides to help out with the time heist, what does he do? He shows up back at the Avengers complex and he gives Cap the shield back. And it's this moment of reconciliation and it's symbolic of Cap taking back the mantle of Captain America and ultimately being welcomed back as an Avenger, coming back to the fold after shedding all of those symbols of belonging and being part of something. He sort of takes it back by taking back the shield. So he takes back that mantle. And then at the end of Endgame, much like Thor does in his own journey, Steve ends up shedding the last of who he was, quote unquote, supposed to be. So he goes back in time. He reunites with Peggy, lives out that life, right? He goes and gets some of that life Tony was talking about, as he says, when he's old Cap. And crucially, he gives the shield to Sam. So he's no longer Captain America. He passes that mantle on to Sam Wilson. And then when Sam picks up the shield, Steve asks him, how does it feel? And then Sam replies, like it's someone else's. To which Steve replies, it isn't. So Steve, just like Thor, just like Tony, goes on this whole 180, that shift from who you're supposed to be to ultimately who you are, and changing that, both that understanding of yourself and who you are as a hero, 
And then ultimately, the relationship to that object. Tony's relationship to the suit changes. Thor's relationship to Mjolnir changes. And ultimately, Steve's relationship to the shield changes. And he ultimately gives it up. And he renounces being Captain America and passes it on to someone else. So in all three of those major figures, in Tony Stark, in Thor, in Steve Rogers, we see the way that these special objects function and their roles and their meanings change over the course of all three stories as the heroes themselves change their own identities and their own understandings of their, of their purpose, of their ultimate goals, and then what it means to be a hero. And that is something we're also going to explore in the context of Star Wars, about the, the changing relationship to certain special objects and the way that that intersects with the hero's journey of several different characters. So now when talking about Steve Rogers and the shield and the end of Endgame, that neatly kind of transitions us into talking about the events of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. There's a couple different things happening in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but I really want to focus on one particular element that I think is especially relevant for this episode and for ultimately making connections back to Star Wars, which is what we ultimately want to do on the Star Wars podcast. <laughs> so the show focuses on... Or one of the things that the show focuses on is the identity and legacy of Captain America and how those are bound up in the object of the shield. And what the show does is it complicates both of those things, both what does it mean to be Captain America and then ultimately what the legacy of Captain America is, what the meaning of that title is, what the meaning of the shield is. Both of those are changed and given deeper and multiple meanings over the course of the show. So what we find out at the start of the show is that Sam ultimately gives up the shield because he feels unworthy of it. He gives it to the Smithsonian. He does not take on the mantle of Captain America despite Steve giving it to him. And Bucky really resents him for doing that. And so that's a source of tension for them early on in the show. So they have that back and forth when they're with the therapist where Bucky asks him, why'd you give up that shield? Sam replies, why are you making such a big deal out of something that has nothing to do with you? And then Bucky replies, Steve believed in you. He trusted you. He gave you that shield for a reason. That shield, that is, that is everything he stood for. That is his legacy. He gave you that shield and you threw it away like it was nothing. So maybe he was wrong about you. And if he was wrong about you, then he was wrong about me. So we see that Sam has a certain ambivalence about taking up the shield and taking up the legacy and the identity of Captain America. He doesn't feel worthy of it, which when we get to Star Wars, that parallels someone else's journey. At the same time that Sam is struggling with this and the decision that he's made, what we see is that the U.S. government has moved on and has christened a new Captain America in the figure of John Walker. And in the case of the John Walker Captain America, it's really a return to form, which is that he's once again this symbol that is getting trotted out in the same way that Steve got trotted out back in the 1940s to sell war bonds. Sam, when he is at the Smithsonian giving the kind of dedication to Captain America, he has this really important line where he talks about symbols. And he says, symbols are nothing without the men and women that give them meaning. And this thing, gestures to the shield, I don't know if there's ever been a greater symbol, but it's more about the man who propped it up and he's gone. So that's going back to that notion of the first Avenger, that conversation with Dr. Erskine, 
where he's talking about it's about the person within. Like the symbol means nothing if you don't have the right character, if you're not the right person. And that is ultimately the moral of John Walker in the new Captain America, which is to go back to that Erskine line. John Walker is trying to be the perfect soldier, but he's not trying to be a good man. And that's where ultimately he fails in terms of taking up the mantle and the legacy of the shield and of Captain America. And what we see over the course of the show is that the weight of the legacy of Captain America and everything that people have invested in it and the shield starts to warp Walker and the decisions that he makes in trying to meet the moment, in trying to be Steve Rogers and to fill his shoes, he ultimately falls short of it. And that's really embodied in that really powerful scene with the bloody shield where he kills one of the flag smashers and then he lifts it up and there's the blood stain across the shield. We're seeing there how Walker is starting to crack in trying to take on this legacy that he is ultimately not worthy of. And then in the aftermath of that killing, he is brought onto Capitol Hill and he is you know, stripped of the title of Captain America and all of the various benefits and status associated with him being a soldier in the army. And he really lashes out where he says, I lived my life by your mandates. I dedicated my life to your mandates. I only ever did what you asked me, what you told me to be and trained me to do. And I did it. And I did it well. You built me. So he's trying to, just like Steve was in the beginning, in First Avenger and then early on in Winter Soldier, he's trying to be following orders, you know, being the dutiful soldier. And there's a tension there between being the perfect soldier and being the good man. There, there, there's the conflict there. Steve saw it in his story, and then John Walker sees it in his story. But whereas Steve ultimately goes the good man route and goes independent, Walker's still trying to lean into the other way. And then what we see with John Walker is that as Captain America, he's this instrument of the U.S. government. At the end of the show, once he's lost the mantle of Captain America, he's made U.S. agent. But we're left with a sense that he's still just another instrument. He hasn't become a better person. He hasn't learned any of the lessons. He hasn't gone through the same journey that Steve did when he was Captain America. He's simply switched one master for another and is now serving another agenda. And we're sort of left with this question of what agenda is that serving? Is it good? Is it bad? But he's just willing to go along with it because it gives him this, this title. It gives him this significance, this meaning, this purpose. And he's not necessarily thinking about the morals and about what sort of person he's being in character and all of that. And in that way, he's ultimately not Steve Rogers. So John Walker is one important person in this story in terms of a lens through which we get to look at Captain America and the shield and the way that the meaning and the significance of that is changing. Another really important person in Falcon and the Winter Soldier is the figure of Isaiah Bradley. And He's really there to kind of complicate the story of Captain America further and to really show some of the darker side and legacy to Cap and to the S.H.I.E.L.D. So what we find out with Isaiah Bradley is that he was experimented on using the super soldier serum and he was used in the Korean War in order to fight Bucky, to fight the Winter Soldier. 
But after that, he was imprisoned and his existence was sort of swept under the rug and he was experimented on. People drew his blood in order to try to replicate the super soldier serum and all of that. And ultimately, he was just lost to history. Nobody knew about him. Not even Steve Rogers, as we find out, knew about Isaiah Bradley and what had happened to him. And the reason that Isaiah Bradley was completely taken out of history and was forgotten about was because of the notion, the idea that a black man couldn't be Captain America. It had to be Steve Rogers, white, with blonde hair and blue eyes and all that. It couldn't be this black man. It couldn't be Isaiah Bradley. And what we find out with him is that Bradley is angry and he's resentful as a result of his experiences, of his imprisonment, of the experiments that were conducted on him. And he really sort of chastises Sam for wanting to carry on the Captain America mantle, for wanting to take on the shield. He says at one point, quote, they will never let a black man be Captain America. And even if they did, no self-respecting black man would ever want to be. So through both John Walker and Isaiah Bradley, the show infuses the shield with multiple and contradictory meanings. So the identity of Captain America, the legacy of Captain America, of the shield, those are being more is being added to those by virtue of these two characters who have different relationships and experiences to both the Captain America identity and also to the shield. And I think the, the story that Sam Wilson ultimately goes on and the arc that he goes on in terms of the reluctance, the ambivalence initially about taking on the shield and becoming Captain America to ultimately by the end of the season to him becoming Captain America and embracing that on. We've already seen that story told in the MCU in the post-Endgame universe, it parallels the story of Spider-Man Far From Home. So in both Falcon and Winter Soldier and in Far From Home, we get to see the struggle between the anointed successor. So you've got Peter Parker, who Tony sort of chose to kind of succeed him as an Avenger, as the next Iron Man. And then you've got Sam, who was chosen by Steve Rogers to be the next Captain America. You've got the, the struggle between the anointed successor and then the pretenders. So in the case of Far From Home, it's Quentin Beck, who is trying to become an Avengers-level hero with Mysterio. And then you've got John Walker, who is trying to become the new Captain America. And so in both Far From Home and in Falcon and Winter Soldier, you've got our heroes who don't feel that they can live up to the moment, who are struggling, and then who ultimately have to triumph over the pretenders and then ultimately take on the mantles and embrace them. So that is just a quick overview of both. Falcon and Winter Soldier, and the MCU vis-a-vis -vis these themes. Let's now actually get to talking a little bit about Star Wars and bringing Star Wars into this conversation, showing how these same themes and ideas of legacy, of identity, of special objects, how those sort of manifest in Star Wars. So in the context of Marvel, we've talked about, talked about the suit with Tony and Iron Man. We've talked about the hammer. We've talked about Mjolnir in the context of Thor. We've talked about the shield with Steve Rogers and with Sam Wilson. When we go to Star Wars, really the special object that we want to talk about in this context, there are, there are a couple that you could talk about in the context of different stories, but the one I really want to focus on that I really think is a through line, particularly through the films of the Skywalker saga, is the lightsaber. So in Star Wars, if we want to focus on just particularly Falcon and Winter Soldier, the lightsaber takes the place of the shield, and it serves this double function in Star Wars, particularly in the movies. On the one hand, the lightsaber embodies the Jedi and their legacy and who they are. 
And then more particularly, the Skywalker saber embodies the Skywalker family and their identity and legacy. So if we go to A New Hope, in A New Hope, Luke gets his lightsaber from Obi-Wan. He gets Anakin's lightsaber. And he is told a particular story about his father and about the Jedi at the same time that he is given the lightsaber. So here's what Obi-Wan tells him. I have something for you. Your father wanted you to have this when you were old enough, but your uncle wouldn't allow it. He feared you might follow old Obi-Wan on some damn fool idealistic crusade like your father did. It's your father's lightsaber. This is the weapon of a Jedi Knight. Not as clumsy or random as a blaster. An elegant weapon for a more civilized age. For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the Old Republic. Before the Dark Times before the Empire. So it gets this whole notion of, here's this lightsaber, belonged to your dad, your dad wanted you to have it. Here's what it symbolizes, the Jedi Knights, Guardians of Peace and Justice, then they got wiped out by the Empire. So it gets this whole story, and all that is infused in that lightsaber, not just a story about his father, and Luke having this material connection to his father, who was a Jedi Knight, but this whole story about who the Jedi were, and their place in the galaxy, and their role, and how that legacy is getting passed on to Luke, not just the legacy of his father, but the legacy of the Jedi through that lightsaber. And then, ultimately, much of Star Wars from that point on, particularly if we look in the context of the movies, but not even just the movies, is about complicating that story that Obi-Wan tells Luke. So when we go immediately to Empire Strikes Back, Luke learns the truth about his father. And when does he learn the truth? He learns the truth at the same time that he loses his physical connection to his legacy, to the lightsaber. Vader chops off Luke's hand. Luke loses the symbolic connection that he has to his father and to his story. He loses the material connection that exists via that lightsaber. He is made to lose it in that moment. And then, just a few seconds later, he is made to lose the literal connection that he has to his father, and to the legacy of his father, and to the legacy of the Jedi, when Vader tells him, no, I am your father. So there's a double move that happens in that scene. The symbolic severing, the material severing, and then also the literal severing. Luke loses his connection to that story that he got told by Obi-Wan, both by losing the lightsaber, and then by learning the truth about who his father really is, what his family really is, what the Skywalker legacy is up to that point. When we get into Return of the Jedi, we find out that Luke has a new lightsaber. And this lightsaber is quite different from the lightsaber that he had in A New Hope and in Empire Strikes Back. For one, the blade is green, not blue. And also it's modeled more after Obi-Wan's lightsaber than it is Anakin's. And I think there, if we connect back to Marvel, I think there is a parallel there to Stormbreaker. Which is in the same way as Thor forging Stormbreaker, Luke making this lightsaber embodies him forging his own path and making his own identity and breaking away from being defined by that story that Obi-Wan had told him all the way back in A New Hope when he gave him his father's lightsaber. Now, as everybody knows in terms of the behind the scenes, the lightsaber needed to be green because they were shooting the desert and the blue wouldn't come off of the, the sand. But I think this is really a case of practical needs serving story purposes. The fact that they ultimately had to make it green because it would shoot better in Tatooine, I think ultimately plays into the story that Return of the Jedi is trying to tell really well about Luke's journey 
both in terms of his own identity and then his identity as a Jedi. And then if we move forward in that movie, we get that great moment on Endor uh, between Luke and Vader where Vader inspects Luke's lightsaber and he turns it on and he says, I see you have constructed a new lightsaber. Your skills are complete. Indeed, you are powerful as the Emperor has foreseen. And I love this scene. I love this moment. I think this is an underrated moment in Return of the Jedi. Vader here is acknowledging that the new saber is a symbol of Luke's growth and evolution. If you think back to Empire Strikes Back, when he has the conversation with Palpatine, and Palpatine says, he could destroy us about Luke. Vader is dismissive. Vader replies, he's just a boy. Obi-Wan can no longer help him. And then when they have that confrontation in Cloud City, what does Vader say? The Force is with you, young Skywalker, but you are not a Jedi yet. So he is dismissive of Luke and his threat. But once he sees the lightsaber, once he sees the new lightsaber and turns it on and looks it over, he says, ah, indeed you are powerful as the Emperor has foreseen. So the lightsaber is also for Vader. It is this material marker of Luke's journey as a Jedi, that he has in fact become a Jedi Knight, and he is forging his own path and his own destiny. And then, ultimately, at the end of the movie, in the climax, we get that fantastic moment of Luke throwing away the lightsaber. When Palpatine is is tempting him to kill his father, fulfill your destiny, and take your father's place at my side, he throws away the lightsaber. And I think there, if we go back to this theme about special objects and about identity and legacy and how those are mediated through these special objects, Obi-Wan in New Hope had linked the lightsaber to the Jedi. This is the weapon of a Jedi Knight, an elegant weapon for a more civilized age. The lightsaber symbolized who the Jedi were when he gave the lightsaber, when he gave Anakin's lightsaber to Luke. But by the time we get to Return of the Jedi, What is Luke's most Jedi move in that movie? It is to throw away the lightsaber. It's to say, the lightsaber is not what makes you a Jedi. Come back to that line in just a few minutes. It's about character. In the same way that Tony being Iron Man wasn't about the suit. In the same way that Thor being Thor wasn't about having Mjolnir. Luke being a Jedi was not about having the weapon and using it. It's not about the weapon. It's about character. It's about who you are. So there's an evolution there and the relationship between person and object there that I think is really important, which is that Luke ultimately fulfills what it means to be a Jedi by discarding his connection to the special object, not by clinging on to it the same way that our Marvel heroes do. So on the one hand, we see in the course of the original trilogy there that complication of Obi-Wan's story and the way that Luke has to sort of negotiate his legacy and his connection to his father and his connection to the Jedi over the course of those movies and the way that the lightsaber, the loss of the lightsaber and the gaining of a new one and the throwing away of it, all the ways that that symbolizes his growth and his change. If we go over to the prequels, the prequels complicate the story of the Jedi that Obi-Wan tells by showing how they strayed from their ideals because Obi-Wan paints the simplistic picture of they were the guardians of peace and justice in the old Republic for a thousand generations. And once again... That story gets told, at least in part, through the lightsaber. Once again, it's mediated through there. So think about that scene in Attack of the Clones, when Obi-Wan and Anakin are about to go into the Outlander Club after Zam, and Anakin has lost his lightsaber, and Obi-Wan hands it back to him, and what does he tell him? This weapon is your life. What a stark contrast to Return of the Jedi Luke, where Obi-Wan is telling Anakin in this moment, this lightsaber, 
This is essential. This is vital to you being a Jedi. This is your life. It is embodied. What it means to be a Jedi is embodied in this saber and you need to hold on to it. Versus the contrast to Return of the Jedi Luke where he becomes a fully realized Jedi by throwing away the lightsaber and then says, I am a Jedi like my father before me. That contrast there in how they're treating the lightsabers is telling so much of the story, the difference between how the Jedi define themselves in the prequel period versus how Luke is defining the Jedi in the, in the original trilogy. And that whole story gets fleshed out over the course of the prequels. We see it, for example, in the figure of Mace Windu at the beginning of Attack of the Clones. He's saying, we're keepers of the peace, not soldiers. By the time we get to Revenge of the Sith, he's talking about how Palpatine is too dangerous to be left alive and how he needs to be killed. So we're seeing how the prequel Jedi are embracing that warrior ethos and how they relate to their lightsabers and that Obi-Wan line. So in a lot of ways, if we want to, again, draw some Marvel parallels, pull back to Falcon and Winter Soldier, the prequel Jedi are John Walker Captain America. They're trying to be perfect soldiers. And they're less and less focused on being good people. But then as we kind of move on to out of the prequels and we start getting into that middle period between the prequels and the original trilogy. And we look at the fall of Order 66 and the destruction of the Jedi. The few Jedi that have survived, we start seeing different views from them. So we get the line from Cal Kestis in Jedi Fallen Order when he says, having a lightsaber isn't what makes you a Jedi. We get the line from Kanan Jarrus in Rebels when he's training Ezra, where he says, having a laser sword doesn't make you a Jedi. So we're starting to see that shift in terms of the Jedi who kind of come out of the experience of the prequels in Order 66, where they have a different view about what it means to be a Jedi and the relationship between Jedis and lightsabers. Whereas we're going from Obi-Wan saying this weapon is your life to somebody like Cal Kestis, someone like Kanan Jarrus saying, the laser sword doesn't make you a Jedi. You can have the lightsaber, but that doesn't mean you're a Jedi. Again, it's about it's about inner character. Going back to Tony and Iron Man, going back to Thor and Mjolnir. And so we can see that that ultimately gets us to, to a nice bridge that, that gets us to Luke throwing away the lightsaber in Return of the Jedi, where we get to see how that evolution happens from the prequels into the middle period into the original trilogy. So from there, we move on into the sequel trilogy. One of the things that frustrates me about sequel trilogy discourse sometimes, particularly on the internet, is you see a lot of people who make the case who claim that there is no unifying theme to the sequel trilogy through the three movies. I think that is totally wrong. The unifying theme is legacy. The sequel trilogy films about legacy. All three of them are about this. All three sequel films deal with legacy. The ways in which you can find meaning in legacy, but then also its burdens and its complications. And as in the original trilogy, as in the prequel trilogy, a lot of that thorny stuff about legacy is dealt with symbolically through special objects, through one in particular, through a lightsaber, all throughout all three movies. So when we go to, when we start in Force Awakens, and we look at Ray's introduction, that great montage of scenes. From the jump, we are introduced to the idea that Ray's story is going to be closely tied to the theme of legacy. So when we first see her, she's scavenging parts from a Star Destroyer. And then she goes home at the end of the day and she lives in an old AT-AT and she puts on a Rebel pilot helmet while she's eating her dinner. So Ray's entire 
day-to-day life, she's got all of these symbols of legacy. She's literally living in legacy. She's living in the wreckage, in the aftermath of the wars of the original trilogy. When we look at the First Order, the First Order is very much calling back to the imagined legacy of the Empire. They're adopting the look and the feel of the Empire, the TIE Fighters, the Star Destroyers, the Stormtrooper armor. They're promising to restore order to the galaxy and security the same way that the Empire ostensibly promised to do that. And then when we look at the figure of Ben Solo slash Kylo Ren, we see with him is that he has been defined and really burdened by legacy his entire life. We see this not just in the movies, but even in some of the extra material. So when he was a Jedi, he had the example of his uncle to live up to. So we had Luke Skywalker, Jedi Knight, a legend there as this person that he was trying to, this ideal that he was trying to strive to reach for and that everybody sort of expected him to become as great as his uncle was because he was, as Luke says in The Last Jedi, he had that mighty Skywalker blood. But then when he turns to the dark side and he becomes Kylo Ren, he still can't escape the imposition of legacy because now Snoke is trying to make him the new Vader. And we're seeing how Kylo is struggling with that. We get that scene in The Force Awakens when he's talking to the burnt Vader helmet. And he's struggling to become who he thinks his grandfather was. He has a distorted understanding of the legacy of his grandfather. He thinks his grandfather is Darth Vader. When he says, I will finish what you started, he thinks that the legacy of his grandfather was to destroy the Jedi. And he's struggling to live up to the example of Darth Vader. And we see Snoke use that against him in the beginning of The Last Jedi when he says, alas, you're no Vader, you're just a child in a mask. So the way that legacy is weighing on him and the way that Kylo slash Ben is kind of buckling underneath that is a really important part of his story. If we shift back to Rey, much like Luke in A New Hope when he gets his father's lightsaber, Rey has this very sunny, simplistic notion of who the Jedi and Luke Skywalker were. She has the kind of legend in her mind. That is what's sort of motivating her and ultimately leads her to go to Octo at the end of the movie. And much like Ben slash Kylo Ren, she is also made to feel the burden of legacy on Takodana when she finds the Skywalker saber in the box and she touches it and she has the visions. And then Maz tells her that lightsaber was Luke's and his father's before him. And now it calls to you And Rey's first response when Maz tells her that is, I have to get back to Jakku. Maz tries to get her to take the saber. And Rey's response to that is, I'm never touching that again. I don't want any part of this. So there's a parallel there to Sam giving up the shield, where the shield is handed to him by Steve at the end of Endgame. And he's like, it feels like somebody else's. He doesn't feel worthy of that legacy of that mantle in the same way that Rey doesn't feel worthy of the legacy and the mantle of the Skywalkers and of the Jedi. She just wants to get back to Jakku to ultimately be reunited with her parents. She doesn't want any part of this. And then at the end of that movie, we get that moment when Kylo is fighting Finn and Rey, where he sees the Skywalker saber and says, that lightsaber, it belongs to me. So there's that, we're getting that introduction of that contested legacy where you've got Kylo 
on the one hand, trying to go after the Skywalker legacy. He has a particular understanding of, you know, who his grandfather was and what his purpose in life was. And then you've got Rey, who is also connected to this legacy now because the lightsaber is calling to her and she's supposed to pick up that mantle, but she's ambivalent about it. And then in that wonderful moment that I talked about in the Force Awakens episode with McDowell, when Rey catches the lightsaber, Kylo tries to reach out to the lightsaber. It doesn't come to him. It flies past him and goes in Rey's hand. That is a moment where she is starting to accept that legacy and taking on the Skywalker saber. She has begun that process of saying, okay, I am taking that step. I am taking on the mantle and all of the responsibilities and meaning that come that are embodied in this special object. So those are all the ways that we're seeing legacy kind of manifested in The Force Awakens, both with our characters and also with the First Order and such. When you go into The Last Jedi, The Last Jedi is really about the legacy of the Jedi and of Luke. So at the beginning of the movie, Luke, famously after being given the lightsaber by Rey, he throws away the lightsaber. And in doing so, what that really symbolizes is we get to see there the way that the meaning of that saber has changed for Luke. So where once the Skywalker saber to him was a symbol of hope of the Jedi of his father, it now embodies his own failures. I talked about this back in the WandaVision episode where the Skywalker saber to Luke is this moment where he experiences a great failure where he rushed out, he cut his training short, he faced Vader, not ready for the burden were you, as Yoda tells him in Return of the Jedi. And Luke, as we know in Octo, he's dwelling on all of these failures, on the failures of the Jedi, on his own failures with Ben. And then Rey shows up and she gives him this other symbol of failure. What is to him another symbol of failure? The Skywalker saber. And he just tosses it away because he wants nothing to do with that. Rey shows up to Octo thinking of Luke as this hero. And ultimately, she has to grapple with a more complex version of Luke, the same way that Luke had to grapple with a more complex version of his father in Empire Strikes Back when he finds out that his father is, in fact, Darth Vader. And that the kind of the simple story that he'd been told by Ben Kenobi wasn't true. And Rey has to discover that the story and the notion that she had of Luke coming to Octo isn't the whole story. And we see how Luke has by virtue of his own experiences, his own perspective about legacy, his own legacy of the legacy of the Jedi has been changed. So there's that great scene where he's giving the second lesson. He says, now that they're extinct, the Jedi are romanticized, deified. But if you strip away the myth and you look at their deeds, the legacy of the Jedi is failure, hypocrisy, hubris. At the height of their powers, they allowed Darth Sidious to rise, create the Empire, and wipe them out. It was a Jedi master who was responsible for the training and creation of Darth Vader. So I think there, Luke in The Last Jedi, at least at the beginning of the movie, not where he ends the movie ultimately, I think there's kind of a parallel there you can draw in kind of broad strokes to somebody like Isaiah Bradley in the sense that both of these characters are figures who have these sort of traumatic experiences happen to them. And in the case of Luke, Luke was kind of responsible through his own actions for what happened to him. And those experiences ultimately change the way that they look at their respective legacies. So Isaiah Bradley's experiences changes the way that he looks at Captain America and the shield and how he defines that legacy. And Luke's experiences vis-a-vis Ben and him turning to the dark side changes the way that he looks at himself and how he looks at the Jedi. And so in addition to complicating the legacy of, of the Jedi, 
Luke is also complicating his own legacy in that movie. So when Rey shows up and she's talking about like, you know, we need you in order to defeat the First Order, he says, you don't need Luke Skywalker. You think what? I'm going to walk out with a laser sword and face down the whole First Order? So Luke there, much like, let's say, like a like a Ben Solo or Kylo Ren, he feels burdened by legacy, by the myth that was constructed around him. And he is trying to shed that. He doesn't want to be Luke Skywalker with the laser sword facing down the whole First Order. Because to him, through his understanding, all that got him was failure and pain. He defines himself now by his failure to train Ben and the loss of Ben to the dark side. Now, we've been talking about the Skywalker saber so far. But there's another important material marker of legacy in The Last Jedi. And that is the sacred Jedi texts on Octo. They are a totem of legacy also. And they play an important role, I think, in the story. So, you know, Luke, he sort of introduces them to Rey, saying, like, just like me, they're the last of the Jedi religion. And then when we go to the end of the movie, to the scene with Luke and Yoda on Octo, which is a scene I absolutely love. It's my favorite scene in the sequel trilogy. What does Yoda do? He blows up the tree. Luke wants to go and he wants to burn it down, burn down the text and the Jedi. He pauses, he hesitates, and then Yoda brings down the lightning and destroys it all. And then they have a conversation. They have a back and forth about the texts where Yoda tells him, time it is for you to look past a pile of old books. Hmm? And then Luke responds, the sacred Jedi texts. And then Yoda replies, oh, read them, have you? Page turners, they were not. Yes, yes, yes. Wisdom they held. But that library contained nothing that the girl Rey does not already possess. That's Yoda's version of having a laser sword isn't what makes you a Jedi. That is Yoda's moment from Thor Ragnarok where Odin is telling Thor, are you Thor the god of hammers? He's telling Luke in that moment, the texts the texts aren't what it means to be a Jedi. The texts are vanity. The, the texts are ephemera. Stop fixating on the texts. Yes, they have wisdom, but there's nothing in those books that the girl Rey does not already possess. The texts symbolize Luke being stuck in the past. He is sitting on this island. He is guarding over them. He is fixated on everything that happened in the past, on his legacy, on the Jedi's legacy, and he is unwilling and unable to move on from that. Yoda is trying to get him to move forward by blowing up the tree. By telling him the greatest teacher failure is, pass on what you have learned. Go forward. Don't fixate on the texts. They're not important. Don't be stuck in the past. Don't be defined by your failures. Use that to move on. There is still good you can do. You can still be the hero. The moral there being ultimately, acknowledge and learn from mistakes on the one hand, but don't get stuck on them. Move forward. Continue to believe in and uphold the ideals. And in that respect, there is a parallel there ultimately to Sam's journey in Falcon Winter Soldier. Through Isaiah Bradley, he has to confront the darker history of Captain America and the S.H.I.E.L.D. In the same way that Rey is made to confront the other aspects of Luke and the Jedi in The Last Jedi. But at the end of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Sam ultimately insists that the ideals are still worth fighting for, and he takes on the shield and he becomes Captain America. Luke gets to that point too, where he ultimately says, I will not be the last Jedi. 
And Rey, despite everything that she's learned about Luke and learned about the Jedi, she ultimately still embraces the mantle and the legacy of the Jedi. She recognizes that those ideals are still worth fighting for despite all of the mistakes, despite all the failures, despite all the dark, unsavory aspects to the Jedi and to Luke and to all their failures. And, you know, I talked about that notion of contested legacy at the end of The Force Awakens. That comes back at the end of The Last Jedi in the throne room scene where both Kylo and Rey are calling the Skywalker saber to them. And whereas at the end of The Force Awakens, Kylo wasn't able to get it to him and it flew past and went to Rey, in The Last Jedi, it's caught between them. So we're seeing how it's becoming more contested. Both of them are now starting to have claims on it, whereas Kylo didn't have really any at all in The Force Awakens. We're seeing by virtue of his character change and how he in his inner conflict and such he, it's the lightsaber starting to come to him it's still he still can't get it entirely he's still not totally worthy of holding the mantle but it's 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 coming to him he's making that progress so on the one hand we've got with the last jedi we've got the legacy of the jedi and interrogating that and exploring it then we move to the rise of skywalker we look at the legacy of evil and the legacy of the sith and to me, Palpatine in The Rise of Skywalker is such a great metaphor for legacy, and he's a great vehicle and great lens through which to talk about the legacy of evil. So both the First Order, as we talked about them, and then ultimately the Final Order, as we're introducing them in The Rise of Skywalker, both of them are rooted in nostalgia and in the past and trying to restore the Empire and the glory days of Imperial rule and Sith rule. And what Palpatine's presence there ultimately symbolizes and tells us is that, sure, the ships, the armor, all of that is shiny and new and there's brand new tech and everything is glistening, but it's the same evil underneath. Once you strip all of that away, at the root of it all, the root of it all is Palpatine. At the root of it is this rotted, rotting figure who is barely clinging to life. That is ultimately, that, that's where nostalgia politics gets you. It just gets you to the past, the same rotten core thing. I think there's great similar, there's great metaphor there. And there's also a callback to what Maz Kanata says in The Force Awakens when she's talking about the fight. She says, the only fight against the dark side. Through the ages, I've seen evil take many forms. The Sith, the Empire to date is the First Order. What Maz is saying in that line is, Evil takes different forms, different faces, but it's the same evil. It's the same struggle. And Palpatine, in the body, in his physical form and being there, embodies that, which is that the First Order, the Final Order, they may have their differences, they may look different aesthetically from the OG Galactic Empire, but at the root, it's the same. It's the same evil. It's this rotted thing. It's this creature living on Exegol. There's no growth. There's no change. There's no newness. It's just going back to the same. It's going back to the same old thing. And so that's one of the many, many reasons I love Palpatine and the Rise of Skywalker. I think it's a great metaphor for that kind of nostalgia movement and nostalgia politics that the sequel trilogy is engaging in with both the First Order and the Final Order. Rey, who has been grappling with legacy all throughout the sequel trilogy and Force Awakens, all the way through The Last Jedi, is made to grapple with it again in this movie, in this context, in the case of the legacy of her grandfather. 
Both Palpatine and Kylo insist that she must uphold his legacy and the legacy of the Sith by virtue of her bloodline. The fact that she is a Palpatine means that she must come to lead the final order, come to sit on the Sith throne. Palpatine says it to her, it is in your blood, it is your birthright to rule. Rey, on the other hand, rejects this. She refuses to take on the mantle of the Sith and instead chooses ultimately by the end of the movie to embrace the Skywalker name and with it their legacy. And there, I think that really marks an important character evolution from The Force Awakens, where if you think back to that scene on Takadana, there she was seemingly overwhelmed by legacy. She got presented with a Skywalker saber, and for her, it was just this burden. It was something that she couldn't take on. She didn't want any part of it. But now, in The Rise of Skywalker, she's willingly embracing, taking on the Skywalker name, the Skywalker legacy, as a means of distancing herself from from rejecting the legacy and the name of her grandfather, of the Palpatines and everything that came with that. And, you know, we get to see all that at multiple moments in the context of Rey. So we get that line from Luke when she's on Octel, a thousand generations live in you now, but this is your fight. Then we get that exchange between her and Palpatine at the end where he says, I am all the Sith. And she says, and I am all the Jedi. It's the personification of legacy. And again, that symbolism there where I am all the Sith right? The legacy of darkness. It's this old man, right? Who has gotten his power back. How? By taking it away parasitically from two other people. And then I am all the Jedi. It's new blood. It's this young person. It's Rey. That contrast, that symbolic contrast. I think there's a lot of metaphorical work happening there that I think is really, really important. At the same time, though, there's there's another side because you don't want to simplify what happens with Rey in her journey. At the same time that she is taking on the Skywalker name, and she's embracing that legacy, and she's saying, I'm all the Jedi. She's still becoming her own person. And that is symbolized by her taking on the yellow lightsaber and by her ultimately burying Luke and Leia's sabers. And I think if we go back to the MCU, if we do a callback, I think there's a parallel there to the end of Thor's journey in Endgame where he says, remember that line, it's time for me to be who I am rather than who I'm supposed to be. Ray was supposed to be Ray Palpatine, but she is Ray Skywalker. And that's what happens at the end of her journey. She becomes who she is rather than who she was, quote unquote, supposed to be. And she, just like Luke with the green saber, just like Thor with Stormbreaker, she has her own object to symbolize her becoming her own person and ultimately taking her own path while still ultimately, you know, calling back to that legacy with the yellow saber and she buries the legacy sabers where she takes on she takes on the skywalker name as saying as to acknowledge that legacy and saying she's carrying that on but with the yellow lightsaber she's saying but ultimately i'm my own person and i'm going to sort of define my own path moving forward so all of those parallels again i think are really really important in terms of legacy and how that legacy gets told and mediated through these objects through the lightsaber through the hammer so on and so forth. As for Kylo Ren, Ben Solo, he has his own journey in terms of legacy and then ultimately his relationship to special objects. Only after renouncing the dark side and becoming Ben Solo again, is he able to take up that Skywalker mantle. So whereas at the end of Force Awakens, he called to the lightsaber and it flew past him. 
Whereas in The Last Jedi, he called the lightsaber and it got kind of stuck in the middle between them. In The Rise of Skywalker, when he's on Exegol and he's Ben Solo again and he's renounced Kylo Ren, the saber comes to him. Ray passes it to him through the Force, through their bond. And again, that is, that for Ben Solo, that is connected to his reinterpreting and re-understanding the legacy of his family, in particular of his grandfather. When he looks at that burnt helmet, he says, I will finish what you started. He thinks the legacy of his grandfather is to be on the dark side and to destroy the Jedi. But when he gets to the end of the Rise of Skywalker and Rey is dead and he's holding her there and he passes on his own life energy to her and ultimately gives up his own life so that Rey can survive and the Jedi can survive through Rey, that legacy can continue through Rey. He comes to embrace that as his grandfather's legacy. He ultimately there finishes what Vader started, which is to destroy the Sith, to bring balance back to the Force, and to ensure the continuity of the Light and of the Jedi. And that happens at the same time that he ultimately takes on the material, the symbolic mantle of the Skywalker Saber once he really understands who his grandfather really was, what it means to finish what his grandfather started. So once again, the way that identity and legacy are bounded up in these objects and the relationships that characters have to these objects, I think you can see it in the story of Rey over the course of the films, but you can also see it in the story of Ben Solo slash Kylo Ren. And so I think in all of those ways, the sequel trilogy tells a really powerful and important story about legacy and all the facets of legacy and the ways that it's liberating, the ways that it's burdensome, the ways that it's contested. And I think that links back to a lot of the themes and ideas in Falcon Winter Soldier, the complex legacy of Captain America and the shield, and ultimately the decision by each hero in each story, whether that's Sam Wilson in Falcon Winter Soldier, and then ultimately in Ray to come to embrace that legacy and that mantle with all the baggage that comes with it, with all that understanding, but then ultimately realizing that there's still worth and there's still value and that is still needed. There is a need for Captain America just as there is a need in the galaxy for the Jedi. And so I think there's some really, really great thematic parallels between Star Wars and the story that we get in Falcon and Winter Soldier and also the story that we get across the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so on that note, we will wrap this episode up. I hope everyone enjoyed that look back at Falcon and Winter Soldier and, you know, the connections between that and Star Wars and the connections between the larger MCU canon and Star Wars. I really enjoy doing these franchise crossover episodes. I think there's a lot to be gained from putting Star Wars side by side with other movies, other television shows, and looking for some of those parallels and some of the ways that they engage with similar sorts of themes and ideas. And so I look forward to continuing to do this over the course of this year and for as long as this show goes. So what to expect on the next episode? Episode 22 will drop on June 20th. All the way back on episode two of the show, I did a list of my top 10 favorite lightsaber duels in Star Wars canon. And back when I started the show, back when I did that episode, I had sort of assumed that I was going to do more of those types of episodes than I have ultimately done. 
But I figured for this next episode, I would return back to that form. So what I'm going to do for episode 22 is I will be doing my top 10 Star Wars characters who have appeared in one movie. So we've got a pretty decent number of characters who we've seen. They've basically been one-and-done characters. They've shown up in one movie, and for one reason or another, they are gone by the end of it. And so I want to take a look back at some of those characters and talk about some of my favorites. Um, I think it's going to be a really, really fun episode and a fun topic to explore. Until then, make sure you are subscribed to the show. Please rate and review the show if you are able to do so. If you're not already following the show on Twitter, you can do that at a larger viewpod. You can also follow me on Twitter at Demondum. And until next time, look for the Force and you will always find me.